You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, be at work now in my words so that we might see and know and love and trust Jesus more and more by the power of your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, we're uh, still working our way through Exodus. If, if you haven't been with us, we've been uh, making our way through the entire book. Though skipping over some um, sections, just sort of hitting some highlights. We can't uh, do it all. We'd be here for a year going through any book of the Bible, mostly. Um, but um, we're in a sort of a subsection, as I said, now in the sort of second, acts of, second act of Exodus, um, in a sort of subsection that runs from chapters 19 through 31. There's more to come, but uh, we saw in chapter 19 uh, two weeks ago that Israel recommits uh, to being God's covenant people. And last week we heard from Deborah who uh, talked about uh, God's moral law. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 20. And the moral law is a sort of constitution for God's nation, what we would later call the Ten Commandments or the, the Decalogue, which just means the ten words. You can uh, see Exodus chapter 20, the first verse, which we recited today, and God spoke all these words, these ten words. That's where Decalogue comes from. And this is, uh, as I said, what we recited earlier in our service as still valid for all. Um, and as a matter of fact, I preached on the immutability of God's law about three and a half years ago when I first got here to this service. Some of you were here, and then someone gave me a present in response as a sort of joke that I've kept in my office that says, exceptions to the Ten Commandments. Some of you have seen this if you've been in my office, and if you open it, it's blank. Every page, there are no exceptions to the Ten Commandments. My daughter keeps wanting to write in it. I say, well, you'll ruin the joke. <laughs> but it's still valid for all people, not just Israel. These are God's immutable words, his moral law. Um, and then in the latter part of chapter 20, which follows the giving of the Ten Commandments through chapter 23, just before what we have today, we're in chapter 24. So we've skipped over this section, which includes uh, not just the, the, the Ten Commandments, but after that, we get what's, what you could consider, if you're a lawyer, sort of like case law that's given as precedent for litigating life in the covenant community. It's not exhaustive. I mean, not everything is there, but there's enough with which the judges of, of Israel could sort of discern what to do, what is right. Um, there are cases demanding capital punishment, restitution, and uh, social justice. And uh, these are sort of principles, as I said, for guiding the, the nation's life uh, to come. And finally, after that, there are instructions for keeping the Sabbath and festivals and instructions on the conquest of Canaan when they enter the, the promised land. And unfortunately, we've, or you might say fortunately, we've skipped all that, right? But you, you can go back and, and read it. If you haven't read it yet or before, I encourage you to. And now we arrive at chapter 24 in which the covenant uh, that was renewed in uh, chapter uh, 20 through 23, really, is confirmed now. Um, and what follows in chapters 25 and 31 after us, just so you know, because we'll skip all this, will be God's discussion with Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, 
where God will literally write the Decalogue in stone. I mean, that's probably where we got that um, saying from, that these things are written in stone as a sealed contract. That's what covenant means, is a sort of contract between God and his people. And this wasn't in, uncommon at the time, it still isn't. But uh, any king during the day would have a, a covenant that they would make and seal in blood um, with their, um, their uh, constituents of different nations that they might take over. And he gives also further instructions for worship. And the tabernacle, which would be for 40 years, they would have a sort of portable temple uh, that they could, you know, uh, pick up stakes and move on and, and worship in the next place. And later it would be the temple that Solomon would build. Um, so all that is to come after our passage today to give you the full, what I'm telling you is all that happens in 19 to 31, this sort of subsection that we're in and some of what we've skipped until getting to today and what we'll skip uh, before next week when Zach preaches on the golden calf incident, uh, which happens after all of that. Um, so just realize that we're skipping all this, but we put the, um, the passages that we're going to preach in, by the way, in the announcement section of the bulletin. So if you're curious, you know, of what, what you're missing, I encourage you to consider uh, reading those things. I mean, we're reading on the entire book of Exodus. If you haven't done so yet, uh, in your own private devotions, you might uh, consider the idea of reading it. No pressure, okay? Um, just an idea. Um, but let's take a focused look at the events of chapter 24, where we're at right now. There are sort of three scenes in this chapter, and today is the, the sort of final scene of chapter 24. And uh, what we skipped, as I've explained, is that uh, Moses first recites to Israel all the rules that God has given him. And they respond, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do all of it, the moral law and also the, the case law and the instructions, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do, to which Moses makes a ritual sacrifice at an altar. And at first he sprinkles oxen blood, half of the blood that spilled from the oxen on an altar. And then he takes the other half of the blood, I don't know how, I imagine with like some sort of instrument or maybe with his hand and sprinkles the blood on the people to seal the contract of all this we will do. Um, this, is, uh, this sacrifice is to seal that, that covenant, that contract. It's signed in blood here. And it's interesting to note that here Moses is acting like a priest. We don't often think of him like that. We think of him as a great prophet. But here at least he's acting like a priest. And that's important for the passage that we're looking at today is basically a, a priest is a mediator, a, a go-between. And in Israel, you have to come to grips with the idea that the priestly office was to ritually kill animals. That's what it meant. They're basically butchers who killed animals uh, for the sake of sacrifice. That's what a priest did in Israel. And in many other uh, religions and cults around the world still to this day, that's what happens. That's why I don't like you calling me a priest. <laughs> By the way, that's what I, what I do, okay? I don't know how to butcher an animal. Um, I preach the gospel. <laughs> I lead, but I certainly am not a priest in that sense. Um, but, but this is important to, to recognize what's going on, the mediation and the, the sacrifice of the animals. Uh, and after, after this, after the, the oxen blood, the sprinkling, 
According to God's uh, instructions, Moses, the elders, and the priests of Israel go midway up Mount Sinai, not all the way to the top. And uh, they have a sort of communion meal together. It's a really interesting scene, if you reread it, in the presence of God. And that's all that's happened uh, before, uh, before we have our passage today, in which uh, only Moses is allowed finally to draw near to God at the top, at the pinnacle of Mount Sinai. God invites Moses to the top. He tells the elders and the priests to, to, to go no further and to act in his place while he's gone to judge the cases of Israel. And then Moses waits in preparation for six days in a cloud before finally drawing all the way to the top to meet God in the glory. And what's going on here, you know, in essence? The whole time, God is drawing Moses up closer and closer, step by step, to God's glory. And he'll act as the people's mediator to receive the law written in stone. And the main tension here is the presence of the Lord. God's glory is, as it says here, a devouring fire. This would be tremendously fear-inducing. The people actually see the fire while at the foot of the mountain, often at the distance, at the top, they could see the fire beyond the clouds. You might just imagine the fires that recently happened in Northern California. I mean, did you read the news of how serious that was or any of the stories of the people that survived it? I mean, imagine you're there, you live in a Napa Valley subdivision, a sort of cul-de-sac neighborhood, right? In Napa Valley, the house probably cost $3 million, and this powerful fire is at the top of the hill above your cul-de-sac, and there you are, and you don't know if it's about to bear down on you and devour you and your home. That's the sort of fear, but probably even more so, that was induced in this scene. And the tension isn't yet resolved in this passage. It ends with that tension, but it points uh, forward towards something to come. And I want to talk to you about that, really. As I said, Moses, in the beginning of chapter 24, acts like a priest. And by the end, he sort of prefigures the role that is to come of what's called the high priest. What I'm saying is that Israel hasn't yet received their ritual instructions. They seem to have some ideas and past instructions. You know, they just sacrificed the oxen. And also the whole Exodus drama began with the request of Pharaoh that went like this. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. That was the original request that Moses made through Aaron to to Pharaoh. Please let us go, just a a three-hour tour, a three-day's journey, right, in the wilderness, we'll come back. We're going to go out there, we're going to have a little sacrifice. So they had some understanding of this stuff, but it isn't entirely codified as we understand it now that Israel practiced their, uh, their worship life. That's to come in just the following chapters. This is the, but as I say, this is the whole premise of the book of Exodus. Uh, that was the, the thing, that Israel might worship its true God. And to do so through, and this is important, a sacrifice. And yet they had no codified ritual system or a high priest just yet. Aaron, Moses' brother, would eventually become the first high priest. But for now, Moses is functioning as a sort of de facto high priest for Israel. And this passage today, what we have, prepares them, and also I would say us, 
for the biblical pattern of worship and salvation. It's an easy passage to kind of overlook, but it gives you an idea of, of how God works, how he wants to be worshiped, and how he works through salvation. First of all, God requires a blood-atoning sacrifice. A high priest must make this sacrifice on behalf of the people. God draws an individual, uh, the temple high priest, into the presence of his glory. And this unique mediator is the representative of the people. In the tabernacle that they would have in the wilderness or in the temple that's later to come in the instructions, there would be an annual festival of what's called Yom Kippur. Have you heard of that before? I mean, they still celebrate that to this day, which basically means the day, the annual day of atonement. Before the, the temple was finally des destroyed in the first century AD, what would happen was only the high priest would be allowed to enter just this one day of the year, okay? There was... There was, a, there was a holy place inside of the temple, and there was a most holy place, the holy of holies at the deepest core center of the temple. And only one day a year, the high priest could enter there uh, for this day of the atonement to make the sacrifice. And in the, that holy place was what's called an ark, a sort of box of the covenant with the, the tablets of stone that are to be written with the Ten Commandments on them in that most holy place. And it's separated by the rest of the, the temple by a veil, a shroud, or a curtain, only to be opened and gone into by the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. And here, in this passage that we have in chapter 24, Mount Sinai is the closest thing to a tabernacle or the temple. And God's presence is separated by a veil of cloud, at the top of this mountain that Moses would receive those tablets. And only Moses was allowed to go up. And just before this, he spilled the blood of an animal to atone for the people. Are you still with me? I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot. It's super important. Like, if you don't get this, just study that. Like, this one thing, okay? Because to understand this is to understand how Jesus Christ worked for all the world. Um, so where have I been? What's my main point so far? Moses has made a blood sacrifice to wor for worship to ratify that contract. And this is the goal of the Exodus from the beginning. And Moses will receive ritual instructions for temple worship. For now, Moses is acting like the high priest. And Mount Sinai is the closest thing to the tabernacle, which they don't have yet. And the pinnacle of the mountain is like the most holy place, shrouded by a veil of cloud. Yet the people can see the terrifying presence of God off in the distance. And as I said, this is super important because to understand this ultimately is what we need to understand the, who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross, okay? For me, that was a confusing thing that took like a decade to understand. <laughs> like, what? I don't get the cross. It doesn't make any sense to me because nobody would explain it to me. But I think you have to kind of understand the way that God works, this sort of Yom Kippur. Uh, and the Yom Kippur was re repeated every year, once a year, to atone endlessly, world without end, for the sinfulness of the people of Israel. And the high priest of Israel was just a man. If you're from England, you would say, he's just a bloke. He's just another guy, okay? That was his office. 
And legend has it, though, this isn't in the Bible, that they would, uh, the high priest in the temple, they would, um, the other priests would tie a scarlet cord to him. This kind of makes me think of the Indiana Jones and the, the last, what was the last one, the last crusade? The last one where they go in, right? They would tie a, a, a cord, scarlet cord to the high priest, and the other priest would hold the end in case the high priest hadn't atoned just enough in preparation to go into the most holy place and would die at the presence of God, and they could pull his body out. <laughs> I mean, th- that's, that's, uh, that's what Yom Kippur was like. Um, but with the new covenant in Jesus Christ, we understand him to be the true high priest. His death as the lamb, or like the ram of Isaac, was the once and for all sacrifice. And his cross was the truest altar. And by his death, the veil of the temple was literally torn. But this is accounted for in three of the four Gospels, making the temple sacrifices obsolete. Don't need it anymore. That's why you don't need to call me a priest. Okay? We don't, we don't need these sacrifices anymore. We have access to God's glory because of Jesus Christ and what he's done. This is the idea of atonement. And don't listen to Desmond Tutu, who calls it at one That's a bunch of baloney. We're talking about blood sacrifice for the cleansing, a covering, a shroud, so that God will see Jesus and his precious blood and not us and our sinfulness. Christ has died for you. The great high priest is also the sacrifice. And this death doesn't have to be renewed annually. Jesus is the once and for all Yom Kippur. And look, I don't blame you if you think all this blood sacrifice stuff sounds crazy. You know, I mean, you were just probably paying your bills a half an hour ago, and here's this guy talking to you about something that sounds like a cult. I don't blame you if that's the sort of reaction that you have, at least at first blush. Uh, I would get it if you were skeptical of all this stuff. But honestly, this is the way that the world works too, if you think about it. We require a sort of pound of flesh, don't we? Debts must be repaid. Honestly, the world is actually worse than that. There's interest, sometimes at a high rate. A life for an eye, not just an eye for an eye, but in a tooth for a tooth, we escalate. And the everyday world is escalating these things, not just in international conflicts, but your own domestic conflicts at home. The difference here is that God pays the debt owed to him. Do you catch that? God pays the debt owed to him. I recently read uh, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, to my daughters. And uh, we watched the, when we finished watching it, I rented the movie version of it, which came out about 10 years ago or so. By the way, you know, sometimes the movie versions of books aren't very good, but that one is. It really um, captures the story quite well. If you're unfamiliar with the story, um, first of all, at least watch the movie, but, but go out and buy the book. It's a fairy tale imagining Jesus Christ in another world, a sort of, uh, what do you call it, an alternate dimension called Narnia as an incarnate in the form of a lion named Aslan, a lion, you know, big king of the jungle, right? Lion named Aslan. And there are four young children who are from our world, from planet Earth, who are able not just to, you know, go to outer space, but to this alternate um, dimension. 
called Narnia through a magic wardrobe. That's why it's called the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And uh, one of the siblings, his name is Edmund, he betrays his siblings and all of Narnia, falling into the hands of the white witch, who's the uh, antagonist of the story. She's a sort of satanic figure. But Edmund is ultimately rescued and returns to his siblings. There's some sort of written law in Narnia that they sort of only hint at, and they call it the deep magic. And this deep magic requires that Edmund die for his betrayal, that he belongs to the witch. And Aslan and the White Witch work out a sort of deal that Aslan would die on what's called the stone table. I mean, Lewis is not being very veiled here. It's a very explicit reference to an altar at the hands of the witch in Edmund's place. Uh, and it's sort of transparently clear that this is an allegory for the atonement. Aslan is the great high priest and the savior in the story. The catch is that Aslan comes back to life. And he explains it by saying, the, the white witch knows about the deep magic, but there's an even deeper magic that she doesn't know about because I was there when the deep magic was written. And the witch doesn't know that. And not only does Edmund live, but Aslan resurrects. And the white witch is destroyed. There's a dialogue between uh, Edmund's sisters in the final chapter, between uh, Lucy and Susan, that goes like this. Does he know, whisper, uh, whispered Lucy to Susan, what Aslan did for him? Does he know what the, the arrangement with the white witch really was? Hush, no, of course not, said Susan. Oughtn't he be told, said Lucy? Oh, surely not, said Susan. It would be too awful for him. Think how you'd feel if you were he. All the same, I think he ought to know, said Lucy. But at that moment, they were interrupted. Ultimately, Edmund's uh, conscience was troubled by what he had done. This is something that uh, his sisters recognize. At least Susie recognizes it. Susan recognizes it, but Lucy wants to tell him, despite the troubled conscience. And it's not clear by the end of the story whether they tell him what Aslan has done for him. Now, I want you to know what's been done for you, whether you like it or not. <laughs> you, ought, you ought to be told. As we see in Exodus chapter 24, no one can rightly stand in the presence of God without being destroyed, not unless God offers mediation, a priest, and a sacrifice. If you were uh, an Israelite, even a, a high priest, you would always be uncertain because the atonement would have to be made over and over again just in case. And even if you were the high priest, you might have a scarlet cord wrapped around your waist. But we have the one true great high priest. And his sacrificial offering was once and for all, giving us access to God's grace. By this sacrifice, we are justified in God's sight. If you are fearful at all and troubled in conscience, these should be great words of comfort to you. Maybe you're unsure of your standing before God based on the things you've done or haven't done, or whatever it is. Or maybe more acutely, you're troubled by the concerns of this world. That's probably more so true. Then hear this. Jesus Christ is your Lord. He has redeemed you 
by his holy and precious blood so that you might live in innocence, in righteousness, and in confidence. And if you don't believe me, just listen to the author of the letter to the Hebrews. And I'll conclude with these words. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our Aslan, Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, has died for you. Our confidence in life together and encouragement is grounded in this message alone. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.